0: Bars and nightclubs took a big hit during the pandemic. Many were forced to close their doors for good. But the shuttering of lesbian bars in particular is something that has been an ongoing trend even before COVID-19 gripped the nation. There are now just over 20 lesbian bars in America. Three of them are in New York City. Enter filmmakers Erica Rose and Alina Street. They're on a mission to celebrate, support, and preserve the nation's remaining lesbian bars. Hi, I'm George Borarchy, and this is Cityscape. I recently caught up with Erica and Alina to chat about their documentary titled The Lesbian Bar Project, as well as the importance of queer spaces. Erica, thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Alina, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thank you so much.
0: So the pandemic has undoubtedly affected businesses of all kinds, but especially bars and other nightlife venues. You created the Lesbian Bar Project with actress Leah Delaria last year. Tell us about that and what it is achieving.
1: So I guess we can kind of dive into the origin story of the Lesbian Bar Project. Um, As we all remember, the pandemic hit in New York City around March 2020. And as filmmakers, our entire industry shut down, so we had nothing but time to reflect on the importance of our gathering spaces and being together. And Alina and I are really good friends, and we would talk on the phone a lot in the early days of the pandemic, processing what was happening and, you know, being there for each other. And we realized the last time we were able to see each other in person was at the Lesbian Bar Gingers in Brooklyn. And this coincided with a couple articles coming out about the disappearance of lesbian bars even before the pandemic. Uh, NBC Out was reporting that there were 16 lesbian bars left in the country, and we knew that these spaces couldn't just They were so fundamental to, you know, our our identities and so many of our friends' identities. And we knew that we had to do everything in our power as filmmakers and storytellers to tell people about these bars, to tell and alert people that these bars are disappearing, and to galvanize the community to come back to the bars and to ensure their survival. And uh, we birthed the Lesbian Bar Project from there.
0: Alina, talk to us about the importance of having lesbian spaces.
2: Lesbian bars are um, more than bars. Uh, They're community centers for us. And um, they're a space where uh, people find their chosen family. And so when you walk into a lesbian bar, my experience the first time I walked into a lesbian bar was that I felt um, a connection that I never thought I would feel. I wasn't fully out And I walked into Cubbyhole in the West Village, and all of a sudden, I saw people, and I saw all these women around me that made me feel like I belonged somewhere, and I had never felt like this before. And so for me, it was also very educational. Um, I met um, mentors and friends. I didn't just, you know, go out to uh, meet a significant other. I actually met uh, my community, and that was really first and foremost, the most important part of why lesbian bars were so important to us. Um, And, you know, we noticed, we realized that we took a lot of things for granted. And when the pandemic started, you know, our priorities were that we really missed being together with our community. And so we realized how much we took those spaces for granted. And that's really also why we had to do something to give back to the community. And we weren't aware that the numbers were so low. So as Erica was mentioning, when all these articles came out, we were just so shocked. And, you know, we felt like we really had to do something about it.
0: Your documentary points out that in 1980, there were around 200 lesbian bars in the United States. And now you said there's what, 16?
1: 21. 21. yeah, it was reported last year that they were 16, um, you know, we, when we, and then one, um, unfortunately closed and we, uh, before our PSA launched. So when we launched our PSA last year, last October, um, you know, we had done months of research trying to locate these bars and we were able to come up with 15. Um, you know, it's, Some of these bars are difficult to find. They might be in areas that are not necessarily LGBTQIA friendly. They might not have public-facing content or social media. So we really did our best, and we uh, relied heavily on the community to step up and tell us about some spots that we might have missed, and uh, they did that. So we got a couple emails, and then we uh, went out and vetted if these bars did identify as a lesbian bar, and so now we released our new list with our film, um, and it's 21 bars.
0: With only three in New York City.
1: Yes.
2: yes, And three in Oklahoma.
0: (laughs) Three in Oklahoma. Yeah. To what do you attribute these low numbers? How come there are so few lesbian bars and how come so many have closed over the years?
1: It's hard to pinpoint one reason. Um, It's a multitude of reasons. There's gentrification, which is plaguing so many of marginalized businesses and marginalized communities. And, you know, rising rents really wipe out entire neighborhoods, um, you know, and just to kind of take a step back, like lesbians never co-opted neighborhoods in the same way that gay men did. Um, you know, we didn't take up neighborhoods. You can argue like Park Slope had its heyday in the 90s, but it was like pretty fleeting. So we, our spaces always existed kind of within other areas. And often we had to be, you know, discreet and the buildings weren't necessarily advertising that it was a lesbian bar. So gentrification, you know, plays into that. We also have assimilation, Um, you know, when gay marriage passed um, across the country in 2015, our most privileged members of our community uh, were swept away with a bit of complacency. Um, You know, they, and, you know, there's parts of, Uh, New York City where I can like walk down the street, go into any bar and feel comfortable with my girlfriend. And that's an immense privilege. And people fought so hard for me to be able to do that. But there's also a tremendous loss when we lose our queer spaces. And it's essentially saying that we're okay. And we're complacent with the fact that space can be categorized as unilaterally heteronormative, and that doesn't reflect our population. Our population isn't just straight, it isn't just white, it isn't just binary. Uh, Our culture has moved online, and that's not not even just dating. It's how we consume media, how we, Pick our restaurants, how we shop. And we have moved further and further away from brick and mortar spaces. And definitely, the kind of online dating and the culture online has definitely um, moved people away from brick and mortar uh, spaces. And, you know, at the end of the day, the wage gap is real. Uh, You know, there are fewer leisure dollars that queer women have to spend. Um, And I think that a lot of the times, queer women happen to be. Mothers or parents, and so their disposable income will go to their children and not necessarily out to the bar. So all those factors, combined with the fact that most of these bars are owned and operated by you know not just women but queer women, and there's discrimination against marginalized owners. I mean, it might be harder to negotiate with the landlord or to get a small business loan or to get investors. So we see all of these kind of uh, factors combined, creating a pressure cooker of obstacles against these spaces. Um, So, you know, it contributes to their overall decline.
0: How frequently do you find yourself having to explain to individuals in the straight community the importance of having a space to yourself? You referenced this, Erica, you know, I can go to any bar now, things are much more accepting than they used to be, and I can feel comfortable. But that's just not the same. It's not the same as having your own individual space. Do you find yourself having to explain that?
1: Yeah, I mean, and I will clarify, I won't say that I can go to any bar. Um, You know, I will say most bars around me and my kind of enclaves in the city and my liberal spaces are definitely, I feel safe in, but I'm sure
0: not true across the country. Right. So we shouldn't say that clearly very different spaces and very, very
1: different. And that's one of the things we highlight in our project, which I think is unique about um, our website and our website landing page, because we have a map that shows where all the bars are. And, you know, in our film, we go to Mobile, Alabama and in Mobile being, Out and proud is a very different thing than being out and proud in New York City. So, you know, there's definitely geographic factors that contribute to, um, you know, how people feel safe and where people feel safe. But yeah, I mean, I feel like as a queer person, it's constantly a pressure to like prove why we matter um, to straight people and to a straight culture and to a heteronormative culture. And at the end of the day, I mean, until like we have true equity in this country, which we don't, um, we're going to be constantly fighting an uphill battle of defending why our spaces are important. And at the end of the day, we don't get, we have very few spaces that are catered to us and to our culture. So that's why when Alina and I set out to do this project, we we knew that there was a possible extinction of spaces that specifically cater to a queer woman's experience. And that is, it's shocking that it's all, like already so low, but it's unacceptable. And we need to work on preserving these spaces and also opening new spaces, which we talk about in our film as well.
2: Yeah. And also on top of that, what we talk about is that, you know, a lot of these bars are lesbian bars and, and they're not just for lesbians. And what we talk about in our film is that we're opening up to, um, you know, the bars are also catering to uh, the trans community and the non-binary community. And we're we're really embracing the fact that now we have the language to really define who we are in the community. And uh, Lisa Canastrasi from Henrietta Hudson says it so well, she says that back in the day, uh, people who went to the bars, um, to the lesbian bars, weren't, you know, they weren't just lesbians. And and at the time, we just didn't have the language to really define who everyone was. And now we do, so we're really embracing that too with our project and um, it's, it's a way for us to really contemplate what we have now and embrace it and also uh, you know open up to a hopeful future as well with these spaces.
0: You mentioned the owner of Henrietta Hudson's. Talk to us about the owners that you feature in this film and what you learn from them.
2: Well, we learned so much from them. they are such incredible uh, women I mean we so as Erica mentioned, we went to hers in Mobile, Alabama, and Rachel and Sheila Smallman are a couple. They opened hers two years ago, and for them, it was like their their baby. They they describe it as their baby, and it was a project that they had wanted to do for a very long time now. And so for them, it's sort of an, a metaphor for you know what they weren't able to have, and now that they're. Out and they're open and they're proud. Um, they also even have their space that they've built, and it's it's just so symbolic and wonderful. Um, and their space is is really sacred. We walk. We went to. They have this great backdoor, uh, outdoor area where um, they did a whole crawfish bake, and everyone was just having the time of their life, you know, you don't just go there to drink, you go there to play darts, you go there to play pool, you go there to eat crawfish. Um, So it, it was really wonderful to see that because obviously in New York, we don't have that much space for outdoor space. I mean, now it's great because there is outdoor dining as well, which is another dimension to the bars that I hadn't witnessed before. All of a sudden you can sit outside, enjoy the city even more and, you know, Hear the birds and a dump truck as well, but that's always, you know, that's that's the charm of New York. And you're also opening up to um, a, a wider audience as well. So all of a sudden, um, you know, there's these bars are also serving food, so they can welcome families and they can also welcome the sober community. So seeing how these, um, the bar owners have really adapted as well to the current circumstances has been so inspiring. And we really hope that this inspires, you know, the fact that the numbers are so low, hopefully it can inspire more people to create more bars and really to show them that it's possible. It's really possible to do that. Um, so Lisa in um, uh, in um, New York has really, uh, she's a, changed her bar from, just, she's now doing like a boudoir cafe style, um, with, there will be some dancing as well. Um, but that's really how she's adapted her business model. Um, cubby hole is a very tight space, but they have a, Adorable um, outdoor space now that they've called the uh, the cubby hut, and it's become quite the hype. And people are just outside, you know, lining up and cheering all together, as if they were already sitting down at the bar. But they're they're not even you know in the bar yet. So it's it's become a bigger it. The dimensions of these bars have really expanded, which have been wonderful. And uh, the last, uh, we also uh, documented, um, we went to DC, and we followed uh, Joe McDaniel and Rachel Pike, who are uh, opening a new bar called As You Are Bar. And they really define it as a lesbian bar and, and, you know, for them, it's about um, Rachel, uh, Joe McDaniel says it so well. So she says, you know, you know, we're not. We're not removing the term lesbian. We're just adding to it. And again, we're back to that, you know, notion of language expansion and communication and uh, feeling like we belong. So they they haven't they have they don't have a brick and mortar yet. But it was really wonderful to see that they were like walking into the future.
0: How were you able to do this documenting amidst the pandemic?
2: <laughs> Great question. It was so fun. <laughs> Um, well, we couldn't film in person. So um, we did a lot of research and, uh, you know, actually people were available to hop on the phone. So we were able to have some great conversations and really get to the root of things. And the, the campaign the Lesbian Bar Project started as a PSA. So it was a 90-second PSA where we relied heavily on archival because we couldn't travel and film the bars in person. And so that was actually merited as well by uh, Leah Delaria, and we wrote this very evocative, beautiful uh, homage to the bars, um, and that sort of transported you through time. And that was the beginning of the Lesbian Bar Project. And now uh, we were able to travel a little bit safely, but we did go to... Um, bars as described and we were really able to dive deeper into um, the bar owner stories the uh, patrons community activists archivists researchers and it was a beautiful project because um, it was sort of the first time people felt a little bit more safe uh, to to film because we we our turnaround was very short actually we shot this at the beginning of um, like at the end of the spring. So it was very short in fact, and we got the film ready for June. So it, it felt obviously still very uh, different than usual to be filming in these circumstances, but we had done a lot and a lot of planning and we had had that whole PSA experience to really plan how we wanted to really capture this moment. Yeah,
1: we were also uh, vaccinated by the time that we got to travel and that was really fortunate. And, um, you know, we were able to go to these spaces and our crew was mostly vaccinated. So, you know, production was happening um, during the pandemic. Uh, There's definitely more safety measures that one has to take. But it was really important for us to document these spaces in, you know, real time and seeing how they were navigating the pandemic.
0: What did you hear from the patrons? What kinds of stories did you get? out of them about the importance of these spaces in their lives
1: well in our film our uh, first patron that we speak to is leah deliria probably arguably the most famous patron of any lesbian bar and you know she talks about how cubbyhole is her chosen family and you know that has a ripple effect throughout the um you know community in the sense that these bars, and Alina said it well before, it's like these bars are not just bars. They're, you know, uh, places for us to inhabit our community and to be together. And, you know, especially going down to Alabama, and when you think of Alabama, you don't think lesbian bar. That's not the first thing that comes to mind, Um, especially as like a kind of liberal New Yorker. I'm not thinking, oh my god, the enclave of like queer culture is in Mobile, Alabama. But I think what really surprised me personally is just seeing this incredibly tight-knit community. And we have a scene in the film where they're at brunch and it's Rachel and Sheila, the owners, with some of their uh, patrons and also staff. And they talk about being queer in Alabama, not necessarily, you know, one of them is, um, you know, masculine presenting and not necessarily feeling seen or safe in everywhere they go. But when walking into hers, they say like, I know my bar has me. And that's a really powerful statement because at the end of the day, you know, when they, no matter what happened to that person during the day, all the awful things that they might've faced, when they walk into those doors at hers, they can relax and they can, put, you know, have a drink or whatever and be with their friends. And that is what these this, these spaces and what our film and our mission is all about, is that people can go in, exhale and be themselves.
0: I think what's also profound about that is that it hasn't changed generationally, right? Despite the progress, I know there's a lot more progress that needs to be made when it comes to the LGBTQ plus community. But generationally, I'm sure you'll hear the same stories from people a long time ago, and now, like these spaces are still that important, right, regardless of quote unquote the progress
2: yeah, yeah, that's why we really want to honor the past because we really feel like it's helping us understand you know who we are today, and we really hope that the project will uh, build this momentum for people to go back to the spaces and after all, you know, they need to show up to the spaces. We need to show up to the spaces. It's a form of activism and the past has shown that it, we things are, you know, at the end of the day, if, if we don't show up for our community, then things will change and we actually have the power to do that as well. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I think there's something to be said that, you know, in decades before the bars, Had such a you know heightened purpose in the sense that it was really the only space where people could truly be outwardly queer. And I think now that our country has moved towards more of a tolerant society rather, you know, I say tolerant rather than accepting, because I don't believe we're accepting um, a tolerant society, you know, people have other spaces where they can, you know, be themselves. And I think that. The pressures that these bars face is a bit more nuanced now and, you know, compared to the kind of blatant police brutality that a lot of these places were, um, you know, had inflicted upon them. So now it's like we look at, you know, all of these mitigating factors kind of coming together and how our culture is shifting too. And that is, you know, part of the decline. Um, And I think it's interesting kind of comparing that to the decades before where literally the police or the local government would shut these places down. And there are still bars, you know, we uh, didn't get to talk about them in our film, but Hershey bar in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, was shut down by the city council a couple of years ago. And that was a place that was around for uh, 30 years and really served the naval community, the lesbian naval community. And, uh, you know, Annette Stone, the owner of Hershey has a really, really fascinating story. And even, you know, in 2018, her bar was shut down by like kind of conservative Christian city council members. So it's definitely something that happens, but I think that it's more of looking at the kind of problems, uh, in a larger scale and showing how like there are systems in our country that do not support marginalized businesses. And we need to do and work harder on like, yes, as like community members, we can do everything to show up to the spaces, to support our bars, give them as much media attention as possible. But we also need to make systemic change to allow small businesses to thrive. And right now they're being uh, really swallowed.
0: Do you get the sense that the last year plus will help to fuel the opening of more lesbian bars or really bars in general, I guess, too, because people have just been holed up so long and they want that social interaction. So the online connection is just not enough anymore. We want to be together and share stories and be communal once again in greater numbers.
1: Yeah, we're getting a lot of emails um, from folks that are starting bars. And it's really exciting. I think you know, Joe says it in our film where she was like, if it wasn't for the pandemic, I don't think I would have made this leap to start as you are bar. And I think that's true of a lot of people. It put so many things into perspective. It's like, you know, our time is limited and we might as well make the best of it. And I think that with people who had hopes and dreams and aspirations to open their bars, they were like, what better time to start doing it than now? Um, I mean, there is a huge uphill battle in terms of the financing of a space like that. But I think that it's like, you might as well go for it. And I think there's, as you were saying, there's a hunger and desire for it. People want to be out and about and interacting with each other.
0: Tell me about gingers. What kind of place is gingers? <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I, I mean, I love a uh, gingers is probably the lesbian bar I've been to the most, honestly. Um, it is, it has this like kind of you walk in and it's divey and it's like intimate and it feels just like so Brooklyn and there's like a pool table and there's a beautiful backyard and it's just, it feels like it's like pulsating and glowing with vibrancy and with life. And I just walk into gingers and I always feel um, really just like at home. I'm like, that's my spot. That's my bar. And, um, we're, yeah, we're, I just love it. The
2: old, so the old wallpaper in the bathroom is iconic <laughs> and obviously the facade of it with the, the blue and the yellow and the red, it just feels so, uh, quirky, but also cozy
0: there are a couple of folks you feature in your project that are also working to preserve and support lesbian bars and that's gwen shockey with her addresses project and then someone who is working on the salsa soul sisters project right
1: so shanta smith cruz um is uh, a volunteer archivist at the Lesbian Herstory Archives, so she is uh, one of the people who is working to preserve the Salsa Soul Sisters. She didn't start the Salsa Soul Sisters. The Salsa Soul Sisters was the first Black and Latina organization in the country that was formed in the 1970s as a reaction to the uh, white-owned lesbian bars being exclusionary to Black and Brown wa- women. So Sean works with the Lesbian Herstory Archives and other universities to preserve and to map out the spaces where the Salsa Soul Sisters occupied. And uh, Gwen started the Addresses Project and, you know, she uh, has been fundamental in documenting these spaces that disappeared. And she, you know, walks around New York City and takes photographs of where these uh, lesbian bars once were. And she really has like a beautiful map of um, the space and kind of you can look and cross compare and see like how many spaces were thriving in new york city um you know in decades past and where we are today in comparison with just three bars open
0: the project is also sponsored by jägermeister right jägermeister's global save the night initiative
2: yeah so uh when we started this adventure um we we were looking uh for someone to partner with because obviously it was a lot of work and um we needed some financial help for production costs. And uh, Jaegermeister out of all brands, uh, started this campaign called the Save the Night campaign. Uh, that was, uh, their goal was to save nightlife from disappearing due to COVID. So their um, mission was very aligned with the Lesbian Bar Project. And uh, it turns out that Jaegermeister is also, um, very kind to the LGBTQ plus community all year round, which is what's which is something that we really took to heart because, um, you know, we don't want to just be recognized one month out of the year. So, it's really nice to work with a uh, company that actually you know understands and uh, supports that. So we uh, we started partnering with them, and they helped us through the PSA. And then uh, for the documentary film, we had a few other executive producers uh, that also signed on and helped us with that.
0: So give me the details of the documentary, how people can watch it, how they can potentially even get involved with supporting the effort.
2: Yeah. So the documentary is available on our website. So lesbianbarproject.com. And it is free to watch and you can also donate to the campaign. You can donate on the website. There is a donate button, or we also have a Venmo at Lesbian Bar Project, and our campaign runs until July 1st.
0: Anything either of you would wanna add that we didn't talk about?
2: Please uh, watch the film, it's free for everyone, yeah. Yeah, also we have some cool merch um, yeah. that's really you know connected to the bars. If anyone wants a little souvenir.
0: And go out and support your bar, right? Get out there.
2: Yes. Show up for your check bar. Out, check out our map and, you know, we're highlighting all the bars. Also, get in touch if you know of any other bars that we haven't found on our map. Let us know.
0: I was going to say that's something that you did yourself because, as you said, NBC was reporting there were 16, but you found that there were over 20. Perhaps, fingers crossed, there might be some more, right?
2: Yeah. Yes, fingers crossed.
0: <laughs> Erica, Alina, thank you so much for your time. Thanks,
2: thanks for having
0: us. us. My thanks to filmmakers Erica Rose and Alina Street. You can find their documentary and a list of the nation's lesbian bars on their website, lesbianbarproject.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Borarchi. My thanks to producer Madison Colombo. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thanks so much for listening. WFUV strikes a chord for LGBTQ homeless youth. My name is Tia Dole, my pronouns are she, her, hers. I am the Chief Clinical Operations Officer of the Trevor Project. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. Our mission is very simple, which is to end LGBTQ suicide
2: among young people. 40% of LGBTQ young people have been seriously considering suicide in the last year. That's an astronomical number.
0: At our core, we are a crisis service, meaning that we have a 24-hour hotline that young people can call us when they're in crisis. They can chat or they can text with us. We're there for whatever they need. We will help find housing resources, help find food resources, things like that right in the moment so that they can get the help that they need, especially if they're experiencing unstable housing. For more information about organizations that assist LGBTQ homeless youth, visit wfuv.org slash strike accord.